Get your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1, looking at verse 14. And uh, if you'll stand with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and then verses 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we're going to be looking today at verses 14 through 18. Where we have this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, there's something very uniquely special about Jesus in that while he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, uh, he has no beginning. He is everlasting. He existed before the foundation of the world. Uh, There is a pre-existingness of Jesus, or as our first sermon in the book of John was titled, the always was-ness of Jesus. He always was. There was never a time that he wasn't. In the beginning was him. He created all things, and everything that was made was made by him. In the beginning was the Word. And that cannot be said of any other great man in history. That cannot be said of any other prophet of history. You look at the other faiths of the world. You look at the the main man of Islam, Muhammad. Muhammad had a beginning. Maybe a nice guy. Maybe even a great guy. But born at approximately 570 A.D., During the year of the elephant, very exciting time to be born, in the Arabian city of Mecca. And poor Muhammad, he was orphaned at the age of six, raised under the care of his grandfather who passed away, then raised under uh, uh, the the care of his uncle. Uh, When he was about 40 years old, he would go and spend extended periods of time in a mountain cave named Hira, where he would spend many nights in prayer. Uh, Three years later, he reported being visited by the 
angel Gabriel in that cave and receiving his first revelation from God. In the year 610, he started preaching of these revelations publicly and uh, is proclaiming the right way of life. Now, as fantastic as that might be, Muhammad is on no level as Jesus. He, he doesn't even compare to Jesus. Around 580 AD, he was born. But Jesus has always been. By the way, check out the ministry Jesus in the Quran. A friend of ours, uh, Jamie Winship, a friend of friends, basically. He probably wouldn't remember me. I have met him. But friend of Calvary Corvallis. Uh, he has this incredible ministry to Muslims where he uses the Quran to show them Jesus. It's an incredible ministry. Uh, however, all that being said, Muhammad doesn't hold a candle to, to Jesus. Then we have the main man of Buddhism. Buddha had a beginning. Now, Buddha's actual name was Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, though he was born in the B.C. time frame, uh, he was born as a prince uh, he was isolated within their palace and castle because uh, his father knew that there was extreme suffering out in the world, wanted to shelter him from the world. And so this prince grew up in the lap of luxury until one day he got outside the walls. He kind of escaped, went out and uh, experienced the world and noticed there was extreme suffering in the world. And he was so grieved by this suffering that he ended up spending extended periods of time fasting and praying under a special tree. And it was there that after these extended periods, he was sort of uh, given this vision of these uh, great ways to, um, to help end suffering. Okay. And uh, we've done great studies uh, on Buddhism and Hinduism. You can go on our website and check out the series, Why Nepal? We get into the deep history of that, and we actually see that uh, many of the ways that uh, Buddhism tries to end suffering turns out being very selfish uh, in nature and actually adds a whole lot more suffering to the world. Okay, so whatever you might want to say about Siddhartha Gautama or the Buddha, um, doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. He had a beginning. He had a birth. Okay? Uh, born in a palace, uh, born to a king here on the earth, where Jesus lived in a palace since eternity past and, and dwelt in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit uh, since before the foundations of the world. And so if you had a chance to listen, it was about four weeks ago that we started the book of John. We encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon, The Always Wasness of Jesus, because we took a deep look at this phrase, the word, okay, the word. Uh, when John uses the word, the word, the bird is the word, just in case you're wondering. Uh, no, Jesus is the word. Uh, he's using this phrase that to us, it doesn't really mean much. Like, what's the big deal about the word, word, you know, except unless you're in a gang and then it's like word, you know, and then, then you get it. Okay. Um, but word basically means, it speaks of the reason, like the deepest reason behind anything. And that's a real shallow way to put it, but it's just the best way that comes to my mind for us. Uh, the, in, the deep reason and meaning 
is Jesus. Okay? In the beginning, before the creation of the world, this reason was there. And John personifies reason, starts calling him a he, shows that he has action, shows that he was uh, with God in the beginning, which shows distinction from the Father. And then he also, John says, back in verses 1 and 2, also tells us that not only was the word with God, but he also was God. So unity and yet distinction between the Father and the Son. God the Father, God the Son, okay? And then later on as we go through the verse, first few verses, we also see that that Son, the Word, created everything. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 speaks of this, the creative work of the Son. Uh, and then now we get to where we're at today, where it's been a little bit of a, a vacation from the Word, Word, a couple verses where no Word was used, and now we're back at it, okay? Verse 14, here we have it again. The word became flesh. Okay? Uh, so it's the first time since verse 1 this term logos or the word reappears. Now, to us we may not totally get this, but to the writer John and to his readers, he is addressing a false teaching that was going on at that time among the Hellenists, among the Greek-speaking Jews. This false uh, faith, this false understanding called docetism or dualism. Okay. And so John is going to use a special form of words to address dualism. He's going to use this phrase, the word becomes flesh to us. We may not get it, but he is using a very strong, uncompromising language and phraseology to combat Dualism, dualism, which it's on a form of like Jehovah's Witness Gnosticism, where uh, that God couldn't have uh, become flesh. There's got to be some sort of distinction between the spirit and the flesh. And, and yet John is preaching to us that he like full on became a man all the way. Okay. And so uh, we use phrases like fully God and fully man, but that baffles our mind because we're talking about two 100 percents. That's 200 percent. Okay. Uh, fully God, fully man, totally God, totally man, the God man. Okay. These are phrases, but really the, the theological way to say it was uh, truly God and truly man. Okay. So yes, fully, but that doesn't really express it and explain it correctly it's truly like he really was all god he really was all man or totally okay totally god and totally man man okay been working on that one this weekend how'd it go pretty good okay thank you uh so big words that are being used here to express truth. By the way, guys, truth is important. Okay? God has revealed who he is to us in the word for a reason. It matters. Okay? Everything in the church flows out of a right understanding of who God is. And right belief leads to right behavior. Okay? If you got behavioral issues in your life, then you've probably got a, an inadequate view of who Jesus is. A.W. Tozer spoke on that in, uh, in Pursuit of God. 
that, uh, you know, we, if we have sin, just constant sin struggles, then it means that we have, uh, we have a, a, an inadequate view of the holiness of God and who he is. Because that understanding of him will shape us and change us and lead to right behavior. Creed affects conduct. Amen. So let's know who Jesus is. Let's be confessing who Jesus is. And, uh, and here we know that he was before the foundations of the world. We know that he became flesh. Uh, this combats any false views of God regarding his, um, fully God, fully man, totally God, totally man. And, um, let me read what D.A. Carson says on this. And by the way, today we're going to get a little nerdy. Okay. Should everyone just do this a little bit? This is how I looked in middle school, actually. Side profile. Okay. All right. D.A. Carson. At this point, the incarnation, by the way, when we talk about the word becomes flesh, it's, it's the word carne in the Greek. And it's similar to like chili con carne, right? With meat, okay? Jesus became meat. Jesus became flesh. It's called the incarnate, the incarnation. Maybe that's new to you. I've always heard about the incarnation, but thought it was like about some sort of breakfast milk that old people drink. Carnation instant breakfast is also good. It's not what we're talking about, okay? The incarnation, D.A. Carson says, or the infleshing of the word is articulated in the boldest way. If the evangelist had said only that the eternal word assumed manhood or adopted the form of a body, the reader steeped in the popular dualism of the Hellenistic world might have missed the point. But John is unambiguous, almost shocking in the expression he uses, the word became flesh. Now, the Greeks usually thought of God too low, okay? In fact, their own gods, have you ever noticed this in Greek mythology? Like, they're a little bit pathetic, okay? Now, they're still, they're, they're still pretty cool. I mean, they're supermen, okay? They do all these, like, mighty things, but they've got all these weaknesses, and they really don't measure up, and so as John is addressing the Greeks, that's what Hellenistic is, it's Greek-speaking Jews, okay? As he's addressing, he's, he's bringing like a higher elevation to who God really is to the Greeks, okay? When the, the Jews, though, had this level, and, and this sounds odd, but it was a level of an understanding of God that was almost too high. And so what he's showing is that even God condescends to man and wants to have relationship with man. So he's addressing a couple cultures and understanding here when he's speaking forth this truth of the incarnation, okay? It's, it's a baffling thing. It's a beautiful thing. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Uh, in theology, it's called the hypostatic union, okay? If I ever have a band, I want to call it that. Seems like a good name. Hey, welcome to hypostatic union. Okay. Um, and we'll have a fan that when you turn it on, it just blows the speaker system out of the church. It'll be great. Okay. Tenney writes, Christ entered into a new dimension of existence through the gateway of human birth and took up his residence among men. 
Now, some have suggested that the word, Jesus Christ, came to dwell in a man. That he himself did not become a man. But John says, Jesus became flesh. Okay, so just, just, okay, feel, feel your skin. Everyone, I'm not seeing it. Okay, just, okay, just flesh, okay? I think of like Romans chapter 7 when Paul says, I know that in myself, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, okay? But Jesus was able to say, I know that in my flesh, I'm all good, okay? He became flesh. He became a man, okay? Others have said that Jesus just appeared like a man. He didn't actually take on human form and become a man. When he walked on the sand, he didn't leave any footprints, that kind of stuff, okay? But he was not an apparition, you guys. Um, He did not take on merely bodily form. He became flesh, carne. Okay, it's difficult to understand how this could happen, but you know what? A God that spoke into nothing and said, let there be light and everything appeared that we know today, this is nothing that's too hard for him. Barclay writes of St. Augustine, who later on in his life said that his, in his pre-Christian days, Augustine had read and studied great pagan philosophers and had read many things but he had never read about the reason becoming flesh. And so, so many educated people out there have all these great and vast ideas, but just like the Greeks, they just don't measure up that God, the creator of the universe would become part of his creation so that he could rescue his people, his creation. He could die at the hands of his creation just to rescue them. Guys, this is outstanding. And this is something that would cause Augustine to become a Christian. Let's just look at some scriptures concerning the incarnation. Okay, Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 3. This is concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So, Part of the understanding of Jesus being born in the flesh was that he has like a full-on family. He has a family line. He's got a grandpappy and a great-grandpappy. And if you want to go 14 times great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpappy, King David was his grandfather, okay? So he's born according to the line of David, according to the carne, okay, according to the flesh, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, that means at just the right moment of human history, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He had a real birth, okay, and he was born in a system under the law. Philippians 2, 7, this is Jesus and how he made himself of no reputation, a real humble man. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. First Timothy 3.16. Uh, halfway through the verse, God was manifested in the flesh. Manifested means to show up or to appear. Here he came onto the world scene in the flesh. Okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then... 
As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. This is an important verse. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. But it tells us why did he have to, what's what's the big deal, man? He did or he didn't. No big deal, man. We all love Jesus here, right? Well, it's important to know the Jesus that we love. Okay, we want to make sure we're talking about the same guy. And this tells us there was a reason he had to come in the flesh. It's all part of his rescue plan. Okay, uh, so we'll come back to that in a little bit. John, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John is speaking in a different letter here in 1 John that he's, he's a real man and we've seen him, and we've, we've handled him, we've hugged him, we've high-fived him, we went camping with him, we went on long walks with him, we saw his flesh fail in various times, okay? Later on in the same epistle, 1 John 4, 2, by this you know a real spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. So if someone is out there preaching that Jesus didn't actually come in the form of a man in flesh, real flesh and blood, fully God, fully man, really, truly God, and also really, truly man, then they're false prophets. And you can just know right away, whatever agenda they've got going on, it ain't real, it ain't true, okay? Second uh, John, chapter 7, well, there's only one chapter, so chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have got out in the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So, you may uh, you may come across this in your various conversations as you begin speaking with people about Jesus. At the heart of every cult is a wrong view of Jesus. Okay, at, at the heart of every false system or religion is a wrong view of Jesus. Okay, and so you guys are getting equipped now to know who Jesus is and why it's important that he is who he says he is, okay? Uh, let's move on to like, what are we on word three of our section today? Good job, Rory. Now we can move to the next word of John where it says that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. We made it four words. And dwelt among us. So we're really cruising right now. When the word became flesh, uh, took on flesh, con carne, in Espanol, por favor. He dwelt among us. He lived and took up residence. It speaks of having one's own tent. Okay? In a small manger in Bethlehem, the eternal Son of God became a man. And so we hold on to this truth, even if we can't comprehend what it means. There was a definite point in human history when Jesus was born as a baby, he's fully God. The gospel of John tells us and the gospel of Luke really emphasizes that he was also fully man to explain the implications of the incarnation in a, in a deeper way here and just get into all the different crazy views out there. We'd be missing the point of what John really is trying to get into here. We'd have like another six weeks probably on just doctrine of God. Okay. But we do want to stick to the word. And as FF Bruce said, 
It is this scripture, chapter 1, verse 14, more than anything else in the New Testament, that provided the foundation for the doctrine of the person of Christ, formulated in the creed of Nicaea back in AD 325, and also the creed or definition of Chalcedon in 451. Okay, let me continue to read Bruce. Bruce, if you remember, I said we were going to nerd out, so don't act surprised. Okay, Bruce writes, the great advantage, I'd almost said the trump card of Christianity was its belief in the incarnation, in a savior who was at once God and man, in denying the co-substantiality of the son with the father, the cult leader Arius broke down the bridge which Christianity had built between a transcendent deity and the insignificance of man. The truth of God incarnate safeguards the Christian doctrine of God, the Father, and the Christian doctrine of man, as well as the doctrine of the person of Christ. Okay, so this is doctrine. And if you're wondering what that means, it means truth that must be believed. Okay, this is orthodox Christianity. This is what the fathers believe. This is what Jesus believed. He taught the apostles and the apostles taught their disciples and so on, so forth. And when someone would creep up with kind of a new little idea, then they would have a lot of deep and intense meeting with the church leaders. And the leaders would say, you know, that's an okay way to understand that. Or that's not an okay. And we're going to label that as heresy, which just means false. Okay. And so uh, Arius was the leader of a cult that believed another view of Jesus. Didn't believe what we're learning today. Um, What we're reading of here in that the word then dwelt among us, it literally means that that he pitched his tent or his tabernacle and lived among us. Now, when you understand the tabernacle of the Old Testament, there's a few things that shows us how Jesus is to his people. That the tabernacle was the center of the camp. It was the place where the law was preserved. It was the dwelling place of God. It was the place of revelation. It was the place where sacrifices were made. It was the center of Israel's worship. And so when Jesus is being used here in this term of dwelling, it like everything that I've read on this this week points to the picture of the tabernacle that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And truly he is the center of the camp. Truly he preserves the law as he said he would. He is God, the dwelling place of God. He is the revelation of who God is. He's the word, right? He's the place where the sacrifice was made and that he offered up his own body and he's the center of worship. So he came and tabernacled among us. Charles Spurgeon said, if God has come to dwell among men by the word main flesh, then let us pitch our tents around this central tabernacle. Do not let us live as if God were a long way off. So Jesus came so that he could be with men, so that God could be with men. 
When we speak of him coming and dwelling and we're speaking of the tabernacle, we're speaking of glory. And in this little three-verse section that we're looking at, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Okay, so five-verse section. Uh, in this section that we're looking at, there's a big emphasis on glory, okay? Beholding the glory and the glory of the Lord. This tabernacling speaks of that. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 5, where the prophecy is that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it, shall see it together. So this is, a, this is a prophecy of the glory coming dwelling among flesh, and flesh seeing it. It's a picture of Jesus coming. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, uh, Peter is recounting the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says, guys, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, we beheld him tabernacling among us, the excellent glory. In a sense, Jesus was the Shekinah glory brought to earth okay now our john passage that we're back at chapter 1 verse 14 we see that uh we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father so we see this glory the shekinah glory the the um the glory of the one and only is how this can be translated Carson says the glory displayed in this incarnate word is the kind of glory a father bestows on his one and only best loved son. That's the kind of glory that the father gave to the son. And when you understand the deity of Jesus and the deity of the father and the deity of the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, it's called the Trinity. You understand that there's different roles within that relationship. Okay. Uh, the son is all about yielding to the father. Okay. It's a great picture of our interpersonal relationships. All of us are valuable. Okay. Just like within the Trinity, the father, the son, the spirit, they're all valuable. Okay. And yet there's roles and there's deference and there's yielding to one another. Jesus does what the father says. He, I always do what he says. The Holy Spirit always is testifying of the son. Is always testifying of Jesus, okay? And um, it's important to know that part of this relationship within the Trinity is that the Father bestows glory on the Son. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, speaking of the incarnation, that it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. It pleased the Father that this idea of a rescue plan involved the Son taking on flesh, dwelling on the earth, living in this hypostatic union state where he's man who also has the fullness of the, of the glory of God dwelling within him. Okay? Uh, he is full, our John passage says, full of grace and truth. Okay? Jesus is totally full of these two important uh, attributes, grace, which is goodness, kindness, just always giving. Jesus is just full of grace, something that we who are 
uh, Christians, which means little Christs, something that we are also is we get to be full of grace towards one another as we're filled with the spirit. We're full of goodwill and gifts. We're full of truth with one another. Jesus is all about grace. He's all about truth. Now, some of the implications of all this. What's the big deal? Okay. Uh, the big deal is that if Jesus had not become a man, number one, he could not have been tempted. Okay. If Jesus had not become a man, he could not have been tempted. But because he was tempted, now victory over sin and temptation is possible for us through his strength. Okay. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Okay. It says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. So if his rescue plan was going to work to rescue us out of sin, part of the plan was he's got to come and he's got to be just like us. Okay. It's got to be just like us. Okay. I'm sure Jesus had a little bit of a hunchback. I bet Jesus had a big Adam's apple and bulging eyes and some large front teeth. I mean, says he had to be just like me. Okay. He had to be just like his brethren so that he could be merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. In other words, He became a man so that he could go through the full human experience so that he could be like, man, I totally understand. I totally understand how strong that pull is. I understand that temptation. And you know what? I'm praying for you. And you know what? Because I said no to that sin, I was able to lay my life down for you and take your punishment so that you could take my blessings of obedience, okay? Uh, And I'm able to help you and aid you and be like a medic to you when you are tempted. So beautiful thing about Jesus is that when we're tempted, we can fall before his throne of grace and plead for him to help us out. Like the combat man who's, who's injured in warfare and he cries out, medic, medic, get him to an aid station, Okay, that's what's happening in the gospel when we're tempted. Medic, get over here and give me aid. And he comes, he's faithful. If Jesus had not become a man, he could not be an example. See, part of the gospel is that Jesus uh, is the model for us. Okay, he tells us what to do and then he does it as an example. And then he becomes the motivation I want to be like Jesus. We're watching the documentary on Michael Jordan right now, the last dance. And oh man, I loved Michael Jordan. I don't follow sports much, but about fourth grade, Michael Jordan, man, oh, just love that. I want to be like Mike, right? And the documentary talks about, you know, when his shoes came out and that saying McDonald's and I, I want to be like Mike, right? That was a great motivation for little kids. And I became a really good basketball player because of it. But Jesus is the greater motivation. And so we can say, I want to be like Jesus. Look, he was tempted in all points like I was, but he never sinned. How did he do that? And he says, you know what? I want to help you. I want to help you walk in that same victory. 
Here's a new pair of sneakers. Got a picture of me going like this on them. You're going to live an awesome life. Okay. Um, Hopefully you're filtering out what seems like total heresy. Jesus did not wear Nike Airs. Okay. If Jesus had not become a man, then he could not have died. We should never look at the manger in Bethlehem without seeing the mountain of Calvary. Because he was born, he could die. We should never contemplate this doctrine of the incarnation without thoughts that drift to the crucifixion. And back in Hebrews chapter 2, the book of Hebrews, by the way, is all about how Jesus is better. Okay? Start reading it. You'll see that the author is trying to show us that whatever we might be drawn to that's away from Jesus, Jesus is better than it. He's writing to Hebrews who were starting to leave Jesus and go back to the system of Judaism, the law, the sacrifices, all of that. And so the author is saying, no, 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 don't do that. Let me show you how Jesus is better than all that, okay? And he's saying in chapter 2 that Jesus is better than angels. The Jews loved angels. Who doesn't love angels, right? He's better than angels because he became a man And well, because he created angels, chapter one and chapter two, because he became a man, he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to, um, to, to be a man in a way that angels never understood. So chapter two, verse nine tells us that we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels in the incarnation for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, okay? So he became a little lower than angels so that he could experience the pain of death and be a sacrifice. And then just a few verses away, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, inasmuch then as, uh, and we read this, uh, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shares in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So if Jesus hadn't become a man, then he couldn't have died for us and in his death defeat the devil. In his death, he accomplished a main part of the gospel. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the Garden of Eden, when man, Adam, woman, Eve, and devil, serpent, are being cursed, God the Father looks at the serpent and says uh, that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush your head, devil. And in the process, he's going to bruise his own heel. And that's what happened at the cross. Crushed Satan, took away his power, and at the same time, he was bruised. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and now is in glory. Okay. J.I. Packer reminds us this. The crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the son of God to the cross of Calvary. And we do not understand it till we see it in this context. So it's so important at Christmas time when we sing about the baby in the manger that we're also singing about that trajectory that he was on to not only live but die. A good friend of mine wrote a song back in the day, Born to Die. 
that I might live. You took upon you all my sin. You paid a debt you didn't owe. And so we've got to have that trajectory in, my, in our mind when we think of the incarnation, when we think of the baby in the manger. And again, J.I. Packer said, the taking of manhood by the son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should ever view it, not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. So we're done. Okay. Worship team, come on up. Something they teach you in school of ministry is learn how to read the room when it's a hundred degrees in here and everybody's sweating. Okay. But by the way, worship's going to get really hot here, right? I mean, we're going to be like, okay. Isn't the incarnation incredible? Isn't it incredible that God became flesh and dwelt among us? Um, trying to catch up on our Bible reading plan right now. And I just have, I'm on the last day before I'm caught up. And so this morning I was reading Psalm 40. Something I love about Psalm 40, it's got a great intro. That's the gospel. And then later on in Psalm 40, there's this incredible passage about how <clears throat> the Lord, just like Isaiah says, was tired of the sacrifices and offerings and the burnt offerings, like the smoke is burning his eyes. Because people are just offering up offerings, but their lives aren't being transformed to want to obey. Just, oh, I'll just make an offering for that, okay? And there's this Psalm 40. In fact, why don't we flip there? You said we were going to be done. I don't think that we have that recorded. In Psalm 40, verse 6, this is known to be like, this is kind of like a Christmas passage, okay? This is known to be like the last words of Jesus in heaven, the son in heaven, before he took on flesh and went down by the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us, and was placed in Mary's womb, okay? This is, this is crazy stuff, okay? So the son is in heaven. There's like a really cool time capsule there that you like step into like at the water park. Then they pull the latch and you, okay? So he's just about, he's got a cool spacesuit on, okay? He's about to get in that thing. About to go down to Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. And these are his last words. And the book of Hebrews chapter 10 references this in kind of this context. And here's what Jesus says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God. And your law is within my heart. Okay. And Hebrews 10 says, um, that he prepared a body for me is how Hebrews 10 adds the translation to it. So he's about to step into this capsule and he says, you know what? I'm going down there to fulfill the commands of God and I just love to do the will of the Father and I'm going to go, I'm going to be a man taken on flesh and I'm going to go and live a perfect life and die the death of a sinner. 
And so as we close down today, let's remember this. Let's remember that the incarnation, the Christmas story, has the trajectory to the Good Friday story, which has the trajectory to the Easter story, okay? When Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, he had a plan that he was going to die for us. And so, Lord, here we are on this Sunday going through John, made it one, two verses. Lord, uh, this is a deep theology. This is deep doctrine. There will be times where we're speeding through narrative, but... Lord, this is, this is it. This is the crux of the matter. This is the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we as J.I. Packer said, we don't want to just be marveling at the event of nature that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's amazing. But we want to be astounded by the event of grace at the cross. We thank you, Lord. That you didn't just leave us in our sin to die and perish under your wrath. But that you came full of grace and truth to redeem us who were under the curse. You came to live an obedient life. You came to live a sympathetic life. You came to live a, a life that would die all so that you could rescue us and come to our aid. And so, Lord, would you do a work in us today where we begin to see great victory in our lives because we have a great understanding of our God. Why don't you stand with me today? And if you came here today and you walked through these front doors of this church and Jesus wasn't your God, Jesus was not your Lord, Jesus was not your Savior, then I would encourage you today to make a confession of him in your heart, maybe even with your lips here today, that Jesus, I want you to be my God today. I want you to be my savior from my sins. I want you to be the master of my life. What kind of love is this that would make such a great journey to rescue me surely you are worthy of all of my affections all of my life all of my ambitions and all of my dreams i hand the reins over to you take control thank you for your blood that was shed that washes away my sins help me to live a life that's worthy of it let my belief today affect my behavior tomorrow. Let my creed affect my conduct. I want to be a Christian. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, let's worship the Lord together.